When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed like to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are here speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each and every one of them is being, is, is hearing their own language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear they are declaring the wonders of God in their own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? This is the word of the Lord. Tucked away in a cupboard at home, I have a rarely played violin, and don't worry, you're not going to hear me playing it today. I haven't so much as taken it out of its case in years, and yet, for some reason, it follows me around wherever I go, from house to house, with the promise that one day it might be played again. Some of you might be virtuoso musicians, and others of you might uh, find following the notes of the, on the page or even holding a tune quite difficult. So let's imagine that a conductor comes along one day and tells you that they are forming an orchestra and they want you to be part of it. Our immediate reaction might be that we don't deserve it, that we'd much rather leave music to the professionals, the ones whose fingers move effortlessly across the keyboard or who instinctively find all the beautiful harmonies with their voices. We've seen them play, we've sat in the audience, we've been inspired by the sweet music that they make. We might have bought the albums or watched the documentaries, but we could never imagine that we would get up on the stage and play. But the conductor insists and explains that we were created to play these instruments, that these instruments were made for us before the beginning of time, and that although we might have neglected them, and we might compare ourselves to the musicians around us, we are missing out if we fail to play them. I wonder what your relationship with the Holy Spirit is. 
Perhaps you feel like your life is full of signs and wonders and you love nothing more than to practice your spiritual gifts, to get them out of the cupboard and to give them a good play and to bask in the presence of God in uplifting worship. Perhaps you find that the Holy Spirit is a little bit more of a small, still voice, that you find the Spirit at work in quieter, more subtle ways. Or perhaps the Spirit in your life feels a little like the unplayed instrument in my cupboard, distant, often forgotten, holding all of this promise, but never being heard. And as you look at other people who seem more spiritual, maybe you worry that you don't find the spirit at work in the ways that they so effortlessly do. The Holy Spirit is, and has always been, a bit mysterious. Throughout the Bible, all sorts of images and metaphors are used to help describe something someone who seems indescribable. Fire, dove, first fruits advocate, gift giver, sometimes feminine, sometimes masculine, other times without gender at all, and most commonly, a wind or the breath of God. And in the Old Testament, this breath is called ruach. It's a good word. Hovering over the waters before the creation of the world. This is the breath that is poured into Adam's lungs, which blew aside the sea as Moses led God's people to freedom. It is the breath which enabled the prophets to speak and which brought life to Ezekiel's dry bones, not his dry bones, the dry bones in the desert. This is the breath which expresses God's life-giving creative power. And these are the words of Joel 2 verse 28, where the prophet speaks of a time when God's ruach will be poured out in a new way. And afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. It is this holy wind of truth that Jesus promises will come to all of us to live with us and in us. And in John 14, Jesus suggests that this breath will be more than simply an expression of God's creative power, that it will be a person, an advocate, a comforter who can travel with us, teaching us a constant companion who reminds us of the ways of Jesus Christ. And so we find ourselves in Acts 2. Here, in crowded into a room with the disciples, 50 days after the events of Easter for the festival of first fruits. And suddenly, a wind from heaven breathes life into this little community just as it breathed life into Adam, 
They were filled with the breath of God, and God at work in them created a church which spread like wildfire, cutting across social, economic, and racial boundaries. Every creed, every color, every language, all could hear in their own tongue. All were welcome. All could participate. And in an instant, God's people are empowered to proclaim, to embody the good news. Miracles abound. But I don't think that the prophecies and the dreams and the visions and the tongues are the really radical thing here. The earth-shattering news is that the Spirit is unleashed, no longer restricted to the temple or to the prophets or even to great men of God like Moses. In this deeply stratified society, the gatekeepers had been stripped of their power and the Spirit had become available to anyone, no matter who they were or where they came from. Jews, Gentiles, men, women, eunuchs, slaves, slave owners, you name it. The Holy Spirit challenged the boundaries that they perceived in exhilarating and terrifying ways. So the story of the early church is a story of people coming to terms with this new diverse community which emerges as the Spirit is unloosed among them. One of the things that's really easily forgotten about the Azusa Street Revival, which marked the beginnings of what we now call Pentecostalism in the US, is that as the Spirit worked, it crossed boundaries in exactly the same way. Male, female, young, old, black, white, every nation and tongue, they all crammed into a little room in San Francisco and in the deeply divided America of the early 20th century, the spirit created a place which overcame those divisions. So it should be a source of real lament when today we see the church failing to respond to the spirit and to make room for that kind of diversity. And this leads, inevitably, to some difficult and delicate situations, now and then. The Corinthians were a lively bunch, and they were seized by the supernatural things of God, and they swiftly incorporated them into their worship. Prophecy, healing, miraculous powers, discernment, they had it all. And this is Paul's response In in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4. There are all kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. Working, in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. It is the same God at work, no matter what your gifts. Paul doesn't have any desire to crush the work of the Spirit. And he even encourages them to eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. But he sees that 
where these gifts occur, it can quickly become a mark of status. Who's speaking in tongues? Who's got the gift of prophecy? Who is my go-to healer? We start giving authority not to God, but to those who demonstrate the most eye-catching, the most alluring spiritual gymnastics. Rather than breaking down boundaries, the work of the Spirit becomes just another set of criteria by which we can judge people. And we begin to deny the Lordship of Christ. But Paul is really keen to bring the church back down to earth. I can speak in the tongues of angels, but if I have not love, he says, in a passage that we may have heard at many, many weddings. Elsewhere, he reminds the Galatians that the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What use is being filled with the Spirit unless it leads us into a deeper love for each other, for our neighbor, and for God. If you want to see evidence of the Spirit at work, don't look for miracles. Look to the way we love one another. This is not a competition. There is no scarcity in the Spirit. We're not meant to be anxious about the presence of the Spirit with us, any more than we feel anxious about whether or not there is breath in our lungs. The Holy Spirit's presence is not dependent upon us. It is all gift. In us and through us, the Spirit is at work building up the church, breaking down the barriers between us and casting us together ever more in the image of the loving God who created us, who goes on recreating us from glory to glory. So whether we experience signs and wonders in our worship today or not, whether there are healings and miracles in our midst, I want to reassure you that where we declare that Jesus is Lord, then the Spirit is present. Where we are led to greater love for one another across boundaries, the Spirit is at work. Where we are empowered to proclaim and to be the evidence of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Spirit is at work. This is the miracle that happens every time we meet, whether it's online or in these pews here, when we spend time worshipping alongside people that we have no earthly business hanging out with, with our eyes fixed on Jesus, who is Lord of all, the Spirit is unleashed and dwelling among us. In fact, the Spirit is the only thing, the only one, who holds us all together, no matter who we are. This is how we know the Spirit is at work. We see the evidence of it in our life together. There is a conductor named Daniel Barenboim. You may have heard of him. And he believes that music 
is an art that touches the depths of human existence, an art of sounds that crosses all borders. And this is something that he hopes to demonstrate with an orchestra which includes equal numbers of Arab and Israeli musicians. And if this is true of music, then it is infinitely more true of the spirit, the advocate, the very breath of God bringing us together in the church. So no matter how gifted or unpracticed we are, we are all invited to participate. There is no place for divas in the heavenly orchestra. It can never be about us, our own talent, our own gifting. We can't blow our own trumpets. I'm sorry. We all have a lot, we all have to play our part. If we're not playing together, we're making a lot of noise without any lasting impact. We are just a clanging gong or a resounding symbol. So no matter what your gifts, whether you feel like all you've got is a triangle, or a French horn, or a scratchy sounding violin, in the spirit there is a place for us. And as we haltingly, hesitantly, make whatever noise it is we find that we've been given, we discover that the gifts of the spirit are in our midst. And something remarkable happens. We produce a melody which blossoms and outstrips any of the notes or the noises that we may be making. This orchestra of forgiven sinners may not be slick, it may not be professional, but it fills all of creation with music which, uh, which pleases the conductor, who hears it like a proud parent, delighting not simply in the music, but in the people who are caught up in the very act of creation. As the God who breathed life into the universe breathes this breath of life into us, together we are recreated into something new, something remarkable, something we call the church, but which we might call the orchestra of the Holy Spirit playing along with the heavenly harmony.